Welcome to the Renew Theology Podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Bethany. We're two millennial women who enjoy discussing God's Word and how it applies to our lives. We believe in seeking to be rooted and established in the Word and allowing its truth to penetrate every area of our lives. So in today's episode, Emily and I are talking about context. And in order to talk about context, we have to talk about the problem and why context is needed, and that's proof texting. So this episode is proof texting. So I have a question. Uh-huh. What the heck is proof texting? Um, so proof texting is essentially taking a verse out of its context and away from everything that gives it meaning and then giving it your own meaning or trying to make it mean something else. Or match what you want it to match. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes. That does it's make confusing. Sense. I know. Yeah. I, um, I, I get proof texting and context mixed up a lot because they sound similar in my head. They do. You're right. Now, the verse that I'm makes this so important. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That last little part there is most important. Rightly handling the word of truth. Hmm. Um, and I, there's a person that um, both Emily and I follow and learn from. Her name is Felicia Masonheimer, and she um, had a quote in one of her blogs, and I wanted to share it with you. It says, Misapplying scripture is easy to do with the Western approach to literature. Our culture wants to read a passage and immediately apply it to our lives. Our concern with productivity spills into our time with the Lord, where we tend to minimize the meta-narrative in search of immediate application. Um, so there are a lot of dangers with proof texting. We're going to talk about false gospel, false encouragement or self-glorification, misunderstandings of who God is, and treating the Bible as a personal source of inspiration and cute quotes or quick fixes. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go through those a little slowly. How can pr- or proof texting lead to a false gospel? Well, I think that this comes back to knowing what you believe and why you believe it. Um, it comes back to having good theology. I think if you take a verse out of context, you can easily make it mean something you want it to mean. Now, by false gospel, I would say anything that we add to the gospel of Christ. Uh, or take away. Or take away, exactly. So, if you say that we need we need grace, but we also need something else, right? Like, most false religions or many false sects of Christianity are built on the fact that they have taken verses and changed their meaning to suit their own beliefs. And I think that that specifically comes out of a place where we have our own theology and then we prove text because we have to find verses that fit that theology. And in order to, and those verses aren't really in the Bible. There aren't actual passages that support our beliefs. So we take a specific verse and remove it from its context so that it can't be compared against those things and then we make it mean something it doesn't in it's order like, to su- support our our errant theology like cut and paste exactly now this is important because there's a lot of things that christians differ on like so many things there are so many different denominations because they believe slightly different things you can have differences and still be brothers and sisters in christ emily and i we disagree on things like that's okay mm-hmm. but you when you get the gospel wrong that's when i would have a really hard time calling you a brother or sister in christ when you believe something that's different than what the gospel is 
Yeah. And we're really responsible. We're responsible to know the truth ourselves. And we're also responsible to not lead others astray. Absolutely. Um, the Bible has very strong words for people who add to or remove or spread false teachings yeah. in the Bible. So I'm going to take false self-encouragement or self-glorification. So false self-encouragement, taking parts of the Bible that were an encouragement to a person or a group of people and applying it to yourself. This can happen pretty easily in the Old Testament, where maybe one of the prophets is talking about um, Israel and they're being like encouraging like Israel, like how I've longed to pluck you up and make you hide under my wings. Jesus actually says that, but he's referring to everybody. Or um, something else where it's like, oh, Israel, Israel, Jerusalem, how I love, like those types of verses. And we take those and we put them on ourselves when they they don't mean us. Hmm. The, the God was not talking to us when he said those things. Now, you can take the principle of God loves his people and apply it to yourself. God mm-hmm. loves me because I am his son or his daughter. That's totally okay. But you right. cannot take that specific verse and write it down as if God was talking to you at that moment in time. There's also the danger of misunderstanding who God is when we proof text. I've seen this done when we just take verses like things that Jesus said about himself or the Father, and we remove those from the passage they're in and we we take that verse on its own solo at face value and we totally don't think about who jesus was speaking to or what specific situation he was speaking to or the time that he was speaking it in and then we take those things and we just blow them up and we build entire foundations of theology on this single verse and that is very harmful because often that there are other verses that don't agree with that and then when you find these and then you think there's contradictions in the bible where in reality you just didn't really you took something way too far exactly and you just you didn't really take that verse in its context and look at it yeah so the other one treating the bible as a personal source of inspiration and cute quotes or quick fixes mm-hmm. yeah i've seen so many little quotes on Pinterest or a classic, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this because I don't know if it's an example, but the classic, um, God is within her, she will not fall or fail. I've seen both. It probably depends on the translation. And like, that's literally a phrase out of the Bible. And we, and people take that and they make it their life mantra. Like, and this just bothers me because I, I think that that's a very flimsy foundation to center your life around. Like, there are so many bigger things that were taught in the Bible that are very specific to you as a person. And so for you to take this one vague reference from the Old Testament that was not even meant for a specific person, and you're focusing so much on that, that you're missing these other things that God has called you to do. And I, I mean, it's a nice thing to say, but what bothers me is when people open the Bible and they treat it as if it is just their personal source of inspiration because that's not why the Bible was written. Nope. That's not its context. It is not chicken soup for your soul. It, <laughs> it's not. It's That's exactly right. It's the opposite of that. It's the opposite. It wasn't written for our entertainment. It was written for our conviction and it was written to teach us and it was written to guide us. 
in God's will for not only our lives, but the whole world. And when we make the whole Bible about making us feel good, we greatly diminish it. And we, we make the gospel so small because and, it's suddenly only about our feelings and emotions and our security. And, and I'm it's sorry. no longer about the God that we love and Exactly. Serve. It's not about you. Mm. The Bible's not about you. The world is not about you. Your life is not about you. Like, you are about Christ. You mm. are about God. Like, God is the one who receives all the glory. God is the one who the focus should be on, not you. Yep. And it's pretty easy because our culture is very individualistic. We like yes. to think, I am going to have my little personal quiet time with the Lord. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But I'm saying you can you can live in an echo chamber mm-hmm. where everything you say kind of bounces back and you keep hearing it. It's also why it's important to be in community and, and talking to other people and, and bouncing it off like the community of Christ. So, Bethany, now that we've talked about what proof texting is and some of the issues related to it, why don't we give some examples? So, you and I have actually gone through and found specific (coughs) examples of proof texting. They're common. They're ones that happen a lot. So, why don't we talk through some of those right now? Let's do it. So, we're going to start with Romans 8.28. Now, this is a verse that you probably know. If I start it, you can probably finish it. For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. When is it usually used? When somebody's trying to comfort someone else. Yeah. Like, if I just had, like, a rough day, you'd, like, come over and pat me on the shoulder and be like... God works all things together for good. Now, I want to add a little caveat here before we get going. I think that that can be so damaging. I know. (laughs) To people. Like... If I have had, like, maybe, yeah, if I just had a rough day, like, I maybe appreciate that. But if I've been through a real tragedy, I probably just want to slap you after hearing that. Like you like you lost your job. It's okay, Emily. God works all things together for good. Yeah. And you're like, I don't see it. My mental response, even if I don't verbalize it, is, you don't know that. Like, you don't know that this is ever going to be fixed. And I think we try to justify it and be like, God sees everything. He sees everything so much bigger than we do. Like somewhere down the line, this thing that is hard, he's going to make it good. Mm -hmm. Like we just, and sometimes he does. Oh, absolutely. Like, I think we're going to get to heaven and he's going to be like, do you remember when this little thing happened? This is what I did with that for Mm -hmm. you. Like that, like that to me, I'm I'm excited for that. I'm excited to see how the little things that we do or the hardships or the struggles that we go through made a difference the problem is that god does not define good the way we define good his primary concern is not our good his primary concern is his glory and so when we look at life circumstances as he's going to work it together for our good how does he define good now what does what does god do when you invite when you become a christian he starts he starts the process of sanctification, which is a really big word, but it essentially means the process of holiness. So right. he's working things in you, like cutting out the bad parts, knocking off bad habits, and then making you more like Christ. God calls you becoming more like Christ good. Mm. So if there's a circumstance in your life 
that's hard and he puts you through it and you're like, man, this is really difficult. And he calls that good. It's because it's making you more like Jesus. So if you read the verse directly after it, which most people don't, it says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's his definition of good, being conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be like the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Mm-hmm. All of the things that happen is for us to become more like Jesus, because when we're more like Jesus, we point others to Jesus. And that brings God glory, which is the point. Right. So when you're going through a tough time and someone says, it's okay, God's working all things together for your good, you can be like, yeah, and I'm becoming more like Jesus, and that's the point. And I think that verse, like, it can definitely be used to comfort people, but it's important that the person you're saying it to understands how to take it. So I think that that can really be an encouraging verse to know that, like, you know what? this issue I'm going through or this trial or tragedy I'm having to walk through right now, it's not wasted, right? Like no. it's it's going to have an eternal impact on my life because I've committed my life to the Lord. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be fixed in this life or that it's going to be all sunshine and roses a year from now or that God's going to reverse it. I think that sometimes we take that verse and we... We, we minimize that verse because we take this verse that is meant to mean something from an eternal perspective and we make it about the present day. Now, it can be hard because the thing you're going through that could be hard could be a death of a loved one. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that, that it's good that that thing is happening, but it means that God can take a bad situation and he can use it to to do his will in your life. Right. Okay, so another verse that I find is often misused, not so much taken out of context as it is just misinterpreted. It's 1 Timothy 2.9, which you may not recognize the reference to, but I think once I read it to you, you'll recognize it. So it goes like this. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. The general principle we take away from this verse is that we need to dress modestly. And different groups of Christians, different churches or denominations, interpret this verse in a variety of different ways. I know people who interpret it as um, just, okay, like maybe don't wear a bikini to youth group, like to a youth group pool party. And other people take it to mean like, don't wear any jewelry at all. I think the main issue here is that we forget to think about cultural context and what this meant back in the day. Um, I don't think it, like in today's context, if we say don't braid your hair, that means quite literally don't braid your hair. You know, we take that to be like, okay, so like no French braids, no pigtails, like whatever. But that's not what that meant when Paul was writing to Timothy. Paul's writing to this young pastor um, who's heading up a church in a cultural that's very similar to ours in the sense that they were appearance focused. So a lot of the women who were coming to churches, um, you know, if you were out in public, you you really dressed up as much as you could. Um, and it was a show of wealth and social status. And so what you had was a lot of women coming to church and treating it like a fashion runway. You know, they were treating church as a place to show off 
their status, their wealth. And they did this by these really elaborate hairdos and, and jewelry and, and, you know, fancy clothing. And Paul is just saying to Timothy, like, look, that's, that's not how women should be dressing in church. Um, because what's going to happen is these women who have a lot of money are going to make the women who don't feel very uncomfortable and unwelcome. And that's going to be very visible. Right. And that's not the spirit of Christ. And that's not what we want to be promoting in our churches. So he's saying, I need women to dress respectably, like dress decently, um, with modesty and self-control. This is not talking about sexual modesty. That's not the context that this was written in. This is talking about financial and economic modesty. How do we know this? Well, the issues, he doesn't say, make sure they have longer skirts on. He doesn't say, make sure you cover up the cleavage. He says, dress with modesty. And then he details what he means by that by saying, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. So this sounds very much like it's about finances to me. He's not saying, don't dress nice. Don't dress nice or dress in a way that will make sure men aren't attracted to you. So Proverbs 31 verse 22, she makes her own bed coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Now purple was a very expensive dye to make um, on clothing. But the point is that like she's dressing nice. She's not like in a paper bag. God is okay with you dressing in nice things. Um, I was reading a book which, um, well, I'm still reading it, so I'm not going to say I recommend it yet, but so far it's good. It's called uh, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. It's by E. Randolph Richards and Brandon J. O'Brien. Or I'm just going to read a quote from that book. They were talking about how economic modesty has always been an issue in church. And, you know, they were just saying how like a couple hundred years ago, it used to be that you rented a family pew in church. Mm-hmm. This is more so a European tradition that kind of has crossed over into North America. What would happen was you rented your like section of pews in a church. And so, of course, the more wealthy families could afford the better seating. So this meant that the wealthy families were more like front and center in the church because they could afford those seats while the less fortunate were often on the sides or in the back. And this even um, in some churches translated into the more wealthy parishioners being seated first in the church. They were allowed to enter the church first and be seated first because of their status. And that's not today. You know, we look at that and we just go, man, like that was awful. Like, you know, it's very easy for us to just see how that was so blatantly inappropriate in a church setting. Um, But I'm just going to read you this quote. It's from page 44 of the book, uh, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. And it says this. Today, we are not judged by the order in which we enter church, but we may judge others by what they drive into the parking lot. Many of us wear our Sunday best to church because we claim we want to look our best for God. But God sees us all week. Is it really God for whom we want to look our best? That really challenged me. Yeah, like how often do we do that? And how often do we look around and and we notice what other people are wearing to church or we see the brand name on their clothing or or the type of vehicle they drive? Now, that's not to say that um, we're not trying to say money is wrong. We're not saying that at all. But we are saying that you're acting in a way in church that is going to make those with less feel uncomfortable and unwelcome, then that's a hard issue that needs to be checked. So I think that that's really important to remember as well. And I'm not making a case here, you know, for or against bikinis or for or against jewelry. That's not my point. That's not my goal. Um, 
my goal is rather to just challenge um, how you interpret this verse. So often when we define modesty, it's almost always clothing related. Yeah. We don't talk about having like a modest spirit or Mm -hmm. like when someone says, oh, they're living modestly. It means they're living within their means. They're not going crazy with their money. That's financial modesty. There are a lot of different definitions of the word. So this last verse is one I actually just came across a few days ago. This is just humorous to me. I just, this is hilarious. I died. (laughs) <laughs> when I, I sent it to you. I was dumbstruck when you sent it to me. This is super funny. So I was on Pinterest and I come across this, you know, this lovely artwork someone had made. I have no clue who it was because, you know, things get lost in the black hole of Pinterest sometimes. And this person had made these four canvases to put up on their wall. And it was like statements about who she was. The one was way out to left field. Um, It was so far off that I was convinced that I had looked up the wrong verse. And over the course of the afternoon, I proceeded to look up the verse several times and double check the reference to make sure I got it right. Um, So I'm just going to read this one to you. The one that shocked me so much was the she is valiant statement. So the verse reference for this one was 2 Samuel chapter 13 verse 28. Um, the very last phrase of the verse was very encouraging. It said, do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. Now I'm reading out of the ESV translation. Other translations may not say valiant. Um, that's what mine says. I looked up the verse and I decided to read through the chapter and just kind of see what, what was going on here. Now it was a familiar story to me and maybe to you as well. Um, it's the story of Amnon and Tamar. Essentially, I'm just going to briefly tell you what happens in this chapter, chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. David is king of Israel at this point. He has grown children. You know, it's it's very safe to assume they're all from different mothers, but he's he's the father. Yeah, they were half-sister, half-brother. Right. There's three siblings mentioned in this in this story. So chapter 13 opens up with this verse. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Okay, so we have the scene is set. We have these three kids of David. And verse 2 says, And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for Amnon to do anything to her. Okay, so basically we have this super inappropriate situation where uh, Amnon is very much lusting for his half-sister, Tamar. And he knows he can't do anything about it because that would be wrong. The story goes on, you can look it up for yourself, the story goes on to say that Amnon had this brilliant friend who was like, oh, I have a plan, like, we'll just figure out a way for you to sleep with her. Um, He rapes her. Basically, Absalom, her other brother, finds out about this. So he devises a little plan. This happens two years later. Okay, so two years after this event happens, Absalom gets his opportunity to get revenge. He's going to go on a little trip. He specifically asks for Amnon to come, and he does. And this is where we get to verse 28, which is the verse quoted um, 
in this example. This is how the whole verse reads. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not I commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. Verse 29. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, each mounted his mule, and fled. So this is not... This is not a good verse. This is not a good situation. This is not even a good command because the command is in a wicked context. Um, Absalom commands his servants to kill Amnon when once he's drunk, you know, and he's he's a little bit less he's he's defenseless. Um, his inhibitions are down. Yep, and. And they do it. And and he's saying, do not fear, have not I commanded you. He's not saying like, yeah, just go for it because it's not a big deal. He's saying, you know, I'm the king's son. I have authority to tell you to do this. So just go do it. Like, you're not going to get in trouble because like, you know, I'm telling you to do it. I'm the one. It's about who Absalom is. It's not about do it because it's the right thing to do. It's do it because of who I am and who I, who is commanding you to do this. And this really floored me when I saw that this person was using this verse. I think what just has happened, I don't think this is an intentional twisting of scripture. I think what's just happened here is somebody was like, ooh, valiant, that's such a nice word. I'm going to like Google search it and see what Bible verse comes up. And, you know, there's a good chance they didn't even read the whole verse. Um, but this is the kind of thing I'm talking about, you know, where we need to look up verses and we need to understand what they mean before making them mantras for our lives. Because although there's nothing wrong at all with telling somebody to be courageous and be valiant, that's a good <clears throat> message. But then you got to back it up with real scripture that really solidifies and lays a good foundation for what you're saying. All right. So I guess all that to say is we just hope that you will personally just have a greater call. You'll feel a greater call of responsibility too, to just be double checking references and just don't believe the first verse somebody gives you yeah you know and and there are so many good verses in the bible you know there are so many encouraging things in the bible i personally when i need to know who i am i love to read ephesians chapter two yeah that's such a good chapter to read through you quoted from it earlier to just know who i am in the lord and i think what proof texting does is it it distracts us from the deep profound truths that are in the Bible. We take these verses, these little short phrases and verses out of context and and we slap them on, you know, a bumper sticker or on a Facebook post or on our Instagram bio and and that's just it and it's it's kind it can be empty. Yeah. But when we take the time to really dig into scripture and dig into a passage and understand who God is and what he says about us, he'll bless it. He will. And it's and it's so encouraging. So I would just challenge you to just not settle for these quick little easy verses, but to dig into the scriptures for yourself and understand what's really there and allow the Lord to reveal things to you. Yeah. So I've got um, a list here, not exhaustive by any means, of how to spot proof texting. So topical preaching. So this is where 
a, a pastor or a teacher is going through and they're teaching on a topic. So they're pulling verses from all over the Bible. And this, not to say that this is a bad thing, but when this is the bulk of what your preaching is, I would be careful of that. Um, and that's versus what we call exegetical preaching, where the, the pastor or the teacher is walking you through verse by verse a text. And they're helping you to understand the word that's there in front of them. If somebody avoids certain passages, like they're trying to prove something, but they're ignoring passages that speak directly to the issue, I'd say that's pretty close to proof texting. Um, maybe it sounds too pretty. Like if it just sounds too pretty, I'd be cautious of that. Not that there isn't beautiful stuff in the Bible, just mm-hmm. that it's there. Um, if what they're quoting is very, very short. There's so many times where I want to quote something and I'm like, I want to take seven verses because they're all really good. Hmm. But if someone's only taking like seven words, I'd be cautious of that. If you can't find that idea anywhere else in the Bible, that's a problem. Yeah, you definitely need to be able to compare the idea or principle against other scripture. And then how tips for how to prevent proof texting. So exegesis, which means to lead out of exegetical preaching is when you're preaching from the word you're trying to teach the word so that you want to be doing that versus a word called eisegesis which means to lead into where you take your ideas and your concepts and your values and you put them into the bible that's or you not find good. verses to support those ideas yeah so you start with you and then you go to the bible that's eisegesis so you want to be doing exegesis where you take the bible and you take from that first and that can be hard because doing so really requires us to submit to scripture. If you have been reading the Bible and had to change your mind about an opinion you strongly held because the Bible didn't agree with it, good for you. Yep. That's how it should be. Um, okay, tip number two, read things in context. I'm not going to explain this too much because you're going to have to listen to the next podcast, which is part two. <laughs> number three, measure ideas against other scripture passages. We've talked about this a little bit. If you come up with an idea in scripture and you're like, hmm, this is kind of new, do some research on it. See if the rest of the Bible or different parts of the Bible support it. And if they do, you probably have a a good principle or truth coming out. But if there's nothing else in the Bible that supports it, you you might have to relook at that and do a lot more digging. And then tip number four is read passages in multiple translations. I cannot stress this enough. Hmm. Because different translations will have a different like a, the Hebrew or Greek or um, Latin word translated differently, and that gives you a better idea of what the original context is. So those are my four tips for preventing proof texting. We'd love to hear if you have any ideas. Um, you can find us on Facebook at Renew Theology. You can also find us on Instagram at Renew Theology. And you can email us any questions you have at renewtheology at gmail.com. And come back next week. We're going to be talking about the other side of proof texting, which is context. So proof texting is what happens when you don't have good context, when you're not reading in context. Next week, we're going to be talking about what context is, the different types of context, and just sharing more about that so that you are better equipped to study the word on your own. See you next time. Bye.